You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. Jesus paid it all is good news. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. As we continue in this series, as we continue in this series, through Matthew chapter 14 through 18, near and far, drawing close to Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 13. We'll read down through verse 20. This is God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I pray now as we look at your word that you would help us. These are momentous words, massive words, and I pray you'd help, them to help us to see them aright that we would not just understand, that we would feel, and that we would embrace the truth that your word gives us here. Father, this word, like any word from you, is a gracious word. You don't have to reveal yourself to us. You don't have to tell us what you're like or how this world works or how it is we need to live to know you and, and live to please you and to be saved by you forever. You didn't have to tell us any of those things, and you have. So I pray we would receive even this particular paragraph this morning, as a gift from you. And that the truth we find here would change us, would change our church, make us more like Christ, make us more pleasing to you, and give us greater joy in him. I pray you do this for your glory and our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is one of the most important passages in all of Matthew, and yet somehow what it tells us is almost too familiar to impress us. Almost too familiar to impress us. It's important, it's significant, but it, it might not feel that way to us, like it would have and should have and did to them. 
Sometimes when you're reading something or seeing something, it, it really speaks to you and it impresses you, and there are things that, that they just are striking to you. I, I occasionally go back. This is my copy of, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I've only read it once, but there's someone in my household, and I won't give his name, but only one of my boys reads, and uh, he destroyed his copy, and then this is where my copy's at right now. I haven't gone back and read it, but, but I will sometimes dip in. There's a paragraph I love, and if you've read the story, it may or may not stand out to you, but, but near the, uh, quite a ways into the story, they are moving the, the gray company, Aragorn, the, kind of the main character, and, or one of the main characters uh, who is the, the king, he is uh, moving forward. The, the, the stakes are, of course, high. It's like to save the whole world from evil, right? And they're preparing to pass through uh, the, uh, I'm not even going to say these things right, it's been so long, but it passed through the place of the dead. And so they're making, he and his, the company, the Dunedain, his company of men uh, are making this passage, this journey. Once, yeah, once shaking his head. I know where this is going because we've read this together. But this passage always strikes me, right? They're going to make this, this difficult ride. And it says they, the company, the great company, camped beside the stone, but they slept little because of the dread of the shadows that helped them round. But when the dawn came, cold and pale, Aragorn rose at once. And he led the company forth upon the journey of, a great, of greatest haste and weariness that any among them had known, save he alone. And only his will held them to go on. No other mortal men could have endured it, save the Dunedain of the north, and with them Gimli the dwarf and Legolas of the Elves. I go back to that paragraph just to read the one paragraph. I just take a little marker in there, and I open it up, and I read, because I love, I love that paragraph. No other mortal men could have made that journey, save the Dunedain of the north. It just strikes me every time. Or perhaps it's uh, scenes in a movie for you, I'll occasionally dip back into the movie Gladiator. I don't think I've watched it since I first watched it, but there's a famous scene, you've probably seen it, where he reveals who he is to his enemy. And uh, it's this, this incredibly tense and dramatic scene where the emperor comes down and he's a bad guy and he wants the gladiator who's actually a famous general but he's been imprisoned and his life has been ruined by this man. He says, reveal yourself, and so he finally takes his helmet off and tells him what his name is, and it's, it's quite a name. And it's a powerful scene. This passage here in Matthew ought to be that dramatic for us. It is that significant. It's a fundamental and foundational question. But I fear that we read it and go, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we say, well, of course, who else would he be? We've known that since we were in Sunday school. Nothing new there. Nothing to get excited about. Let's keep reading. But there's much here. It is a powerful and significant scene, and we need to not just know it, we need to feel it in the import of it. Here's the first thing I want to say this morning. Jesus is who he is. I hate to say it that way. It is what it is. Could be about the laziest, <laughs> the laziest sort of argument that we all make anymore. But it needs to be said that Jesus is who he is, as opposed to who we might wish or want him to be. Jesus is who he is. As we look in verse 13, he's asked the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man, that is, that's Jesus' preferred title for himself. 
You know where that comes from. It comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. This great prophecy of one who's brought before the Ancient of Days. And, and one like the Son of Man, it says, is given authority and dominion over every kingdom. One like the Son of Man. That's Jesus' preferred title. And everyone that would hear that, every Jewish person that would hear that would go, Son of Man, that's Daniel 7, the one that's given authority by the Ancient of Days over every kingdom and nation forever. But it, there is still a little bit humility in it, right? It is a son of man after all. It's a big claim, but it's a little ambiguous. But the question Jesus asks here is, who do people say that I am? You know, there's no necessary correlation between who people say Jesus is and who he really is. They could say the wrong thing. Who do people say that I am? And they say things like, well, the disciples report, well, they'll say John the Baptist. That's what Herod the king thought. News of Jesus' ministry and miracles came out, and Jesus and John, or Herod said, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is the kind of stuff John the Baptist did. It must be John. But Jesus is not John the Baptist. And others would say Elijah. Elijah was one of the greatest of the prophets. Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven. And so Jewish tradition said he's coming back. Later prophets would talk about the day the Messiah comes would be the day when Elijah returns. And so people said, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah, but Jesus is not Elijah. And people say, well, maybe he's Jeremiah. And there was a legend that Jeremiah, when he left right before the Babylonian captiv captivity, that he'd taken the Ark of the Covenant and he'd taken the tablets of the Ten Commandments and, and he was going to bring them back when the time came, when the Messiah came to restore the kingdom to Israel. Also, Jeremiah was a prophet of, of suffering and authority, proclaiming disaster, not unlike Jesus himself. So others say, maybe, maybe he's Jeremiah, but Jesus is not Jeremiah. And they say, maybe he's one of the prophets, but Jesus is much more than that. There is no necessary correlation between what people say or who people say Jesus is and who he really is. For a number of years, I assume it was canceled this year, but for a number of decades, maybe a hundred years, how old was the Washington Club in Holly? A hundred and twenty-eight years, around the time of President's Day, Holly had, is the Washington Club is what they called it, right? And they would have a Washington Day or President's Day dinner remembering George Washington. Steve and Janie for several years would get a couple tables there and you'd go and eat a traditional meal uh, and uh, they would have a guest speaker and they would talk about George Washington. And here's the thing, George Washington might mean all sorts of things to all sorts of people. You might say, George, what George Washington means to me is... Uh, Limited self-government. That's wonderful. You can say what George Washington means to me is magnificent leadership in the face of great difficulty. You know, Valley Forge, and that's fantastic. You could even say what George, George Washington means to me is George Washington is why I love pizza. And it doesn't make any sense, but that's fine if that's what you want to think about George Washington. It doesn't really matter. But you can't think and talk about Jesus that way. Well, what Jesus is to me is this or that. What you think may be right, and it might be wrong, but Jesus is who he is. Jesus is who the Bible reveals him to be. You can say of George Washington, he doesn't mean anything to me. And that's okay. 
But to say, well, Jesus doesn't mean anything to me, well, that's going to be an issue. You have the right to say that, but it's going to matter. It's going to matter. Jesus is not a matter of speculation or opinion. Who Jesus is is ultimately and eventually a matter of confrontation. Someday, each of us will be confronted with the real Jesus. Jesus as he really is. And we won't be able to say, well, I like to think of you, Jesus, as this, or I like to think of you as that, or I operated on the assumption that it didn't matter. We will confront Jesus as he really is. C.S. Lewis, that famous author, famously said that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be Lord, and he said, you can call him a liar, you can say he didn't know. Or you say he was a liar, he was deceiving us about who he really was. You can say he was a lunatic, and when he said he was God, he was crazy. But if he's not a liar or a lunatic, he must be what? Lord, right? What follows then, I think, is this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? How do you think of him? How do you feel about him? How do you respond to who he is revealed to be in the Bible? That's the next question Jesus goes to here in Matthew 16. He says to his disciples, after they say, well, people say John the Baptist, people say Jeremiah, people say Elijah, he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The question of who Jesus is is a question that confronts each of us. You can dodge the question. Here's the thing. You could dodge the question for your whole life. You could say, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to address it. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to do my own thing. You can dodge the question your whole life until the end. Because someday, this question is going to be staring us as the massive question, the ultimate question that confronts us as we prepare to enter eternity. We were just saying in our song, right? This, when that day comes, we're, what, we're still going to say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. At least, I hope that's what we'll say. But that day is going to come. We must discern who Jesus really is. We saw last week in the first part of chapter 16 that the Pharisees and Sadducees come. They're skeptics. They don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. They say, show us a sign from heaven. That word heaven is the word uranos. It's the same word we get the title of this, the planet between Jupiter and Neptune from, or Saturn and Neptune. Uranos, it's also the word for sky. Jesus, look back at verse 2. Jesus, they asked for a sign from heaven, a sign from Uranos, and he answered them, when it's evening, you will say it will be fair weather for the sky, same word, Uranos, for the Uranos is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the Uranos is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, the Uranos, but you, you can't interpret the signs of the times. He says, you can't interpret it. You want a sign from the sky, he goes, but you, he goes, you can tell red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor take warning but you can't really interpret the signs of the times. You don't see it. That word interpret is a word from Crino, from judge. He goes, you can't judge. You, see what, you should see what's going on, but you don't. You can't interpret, you can't understand who I am. It's the same thing that happens back in chapter 11. I won't have you turn back there. Back in chapter 11, John the Baptist the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah, sends his disciples to Jesus. John's in prison, and he sends the disciples to Jesus, and he says, um, 
John wants to know, are you the one? Or should we be looking for another? This is the forerunner himself. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, tell him it's me. And he doesn't say, oh, good grief, John, come on. What does he say? He says, tell him that the lame walk and the blind see and the dead are raised. He goes right back to the prophet Isaiah and says, just, just remind him of what's going on. Exactly what you would expect to be going on if God's Messiah had come. John had trouble interpreting the times. And Jesus is gentle with him because he knows who's John, who John is and he knows John's heart. He's not gentle with these guys. He knows their heart too. They can't interpret the sign of the times. We, we must do that. We must see and judge rightly who Jesus is because who he is to us and what our relationship to him is is the most important question in our lives. It doesn't feel maybe like that's the case. It may feel like your situation at work is the most important question in your life or how your marriage is going is the most important question in your life or what's up with your kids or what's up with your health or what's up with your finances. or what. But the most important question in your life and mine is what is our relationship to Jesus? The issue confronts us relentlessly. Who is Jesus to you? I was reading this week the biography of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was the first great foreign missionary from the United States, uh, very early 1800s. And Judson eventually would go to Burma uh, and minister there for many years, which is a whole story in itself. But as a kid, he grew up in a pastor's home, and his dad was austere and kind of harsh and, and uncompromising. And Adoniram uh, um, Judson was a brilliant child. Everyone saw early, this kid's going places. He's going to accomplish much. Well, when he got old enough to go to college, they lived at that time in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And the, the logical course would be to go to Harvard, but Harvard even then was too theologically liberal for his dad. So he sent him to a different college in Providence, Rhode Island, this now Brown University, an Ivy League school. And he sent him there because he knew the faculty would be theologically orthodox. And he went there, and as he was there, the, the faculty was indeed theologically orthodox, but the students weren't all. And, he, and this uh, Adoniram Judson, this brilliant young man, gets in with a certain crowd there, particularly with a guy named Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames was from Maine, and he was a deist at a time when the college was clearly Christian. And the deists believe, ah, there's a God, but basically... It doesn't really have anything to do with this world or this life. Not a Christian religion, deism. Jesus, at best, is a good teacher. And so Judson falls under the sway of Jacob Eames. And they become close friends, and they work together on all sorts of things. And, and Judson becomes a deist, following his friend and mentor, if you will, this young man, Jacob Eames. Well, a few years later, he graduates. Judson's not yet 20 years old. He's valedictorian of his class, and he returns home, not sure what to do, but he's determined to do big things, impressive things. He's ambitious. He wants to make a name for himself. And he teaches for a few years and finally begins, or for a few months, rather, and finally decides, I need to go to a bigger place, figure out maybe the way I'm going to make my name for myself and my mark in the world is I want to go to New York, and I want to write for the theater. Now, to people like Judson's parents. New York was about the most sinful place in the country, and the theater was about the most sinful thing you could go be involved in. And so he tells them, he actually doesn't tell them about the theater, he just says, I want to go, I want to travel to Massachusetts, visit my uncle who's a pastor, and I'm going to take the steamboat down and check out New York. He doesn't even tell them about the theater. And his parents are just 
Why in the world would you want to do that? Why in the world would you? Why, if you don't know what you want to do, why don't you just study for the ministry and become a minister? And eventually, as they go back and forth and argue, Judson finally comes out and says, I'm a deist. I don't believe what you believe, and his parents are crushed. His dad begins to make arguments, but for every argument he has, his son, who's cleverer than he is, has two better arguments. So his dad gives up. His mom just cries and prays and begs, and eventually he's like, I'm gone, I'm going. And he takes a horse and he rides west across Massachusetts into New York. He spends just a day with his uncle, an elderly pastor, and gets on the boat and heads down to New York to check out the theater scene and how he wants to be part of this thing, make a name for himself. Well, then some things start to happen. He gets to New York. It's not a really great time for the theater. He catches in with this group, but he is very unimpressed with them, their lifestyle. Everything about it is not what he expected. He's deeply unimpressed. He gets just disenchanted with it, takes the boat back up to his uncle's house where he's going to pick up his horse. His uncle's gone. And while he's there, he meets, there's a young minister there in his place who, who unlike his own father, really impresses him. He just seems thoughtful, smart. He's, he's solidly Christian, but it's just really impressive to young Judson. But he gets on his horse and he leaves and heads the opposite way from home. Well, he travels just a day or two and he stops at a country inn, we would say in the middle of nowhere. He says, you have a room. They say, we have one room, but it's right next, the man in the room next to it appears to be dying. Judson's like, all right, I need a room. So he takes this room for the night. And through the night, through the thin walls, he hears this young man occasionally gasping and groaning. He hears sometimes footsteps and low voices. And, and as he lays there on bed, Judson begins to think about his own mortality. That his life will end someday. Of course, in that day, people generally just didn't live as long, nearly as long as today. He begins to think about his own mortality and how if, if the deism that his friends at university and that he had embraced were true, that death would be the end, it would be meaningless, his life would be meaningless, and he began to, to kind of despair. What if his father's religion, what if Christ was really true? Well, eventually he fell asleep. And he woke up in the morning and he felt a ton better. He, he chided himself for his midnight musings and despair, and, and he woke on a bright sunny day, and the world looked good again, and, and everything was okay. So he got his stuff around, and he went down and uh, spoke to the innkeeper as he was settling up uh, his bill, and, and he said to the man, he said, uh, how's, the, uh, how's the man in the room next to me? Is, uh, is he feeling better? And the innkeeper said, no, he's dead. And a little bit of that despair crept back in, and he said a few polite things, the sort of thing you'd say in that situation about being sorry to hear it and such. And he said uh, to the innkeeper, uh, well, who was the guy? Do you know his name? The innkeeper said, oh, yes. Oh, yes, he's a young man from the college over in Providence, named Eames, Jacob Eames. And Judson was floored. He spent hours there. We don't know what he did. It was hours later that he left. And his mind was, and his heart and his soul were just, what is, it, the word that kept coming to him is just lost. Eames is lost to the world. He's lost to life. He's lost to us. He's lost to God. And he turned his horse around and he headed back for home. And it would be some time, but it marked a, a turning point in his life that this view of Christ is 
maybe a good teacher, maybe a good influence, but inconsequential. This view of Christ that is something way less than the Messiah, the Son of God, simply wasn't going to do. He could not build a life in a future or eternity on that. And eventually, of course, Judson became one of the great, great missionaries of the church. Who Jesus is to you will be eternally decisive. And we see then who Jesus is. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Surely they must have considered that possibility before. Surely they must have thought that perhaps he is the one. But, but the open declaration of it here is significant and startling because they are articulating out loud who Jesus is. If Jesus is the Messiah, it changes everything. It's startling news. It is good news. He's the Christ, Christos, the anointed one. Who gets anointed? Well, mostly in the Old Testament, kings. Kings get anointed. And Jesus is, the, other, the, the Old Testament word for Christos is Messiah. He's the king, the one that was going to come and rule God's people. The one that was not only going to rule over God's people, but save them, deliver them from their suffering and oppression. He is the Christ He's not just the son of man, he's the son of the living God. They are at Caesarea Philippi, it's a city way to the north, near the city of what in the Old Testament was called Dan. It was kind of the north extremity of the nation of Israel. If you were coming to and fro from Israel from anywhere else to the north or the east, you came through the city of Dan. It was close to foreign countries and often was occupied by foreign countries and had a lot of pagan religious influence there. There's a 9,000-foot-tall mountain there covered with snow well into uh, April and May. It was just a significant and impressive place, a site of much pagan worship. So it's remarkable that in this context, they'll speak and say who Jesus is. He's the son of the living God. There is a, a long stone wall, natural formation, near the base of this mountain and near the city that was covered with these reliefs, these carvings of all sorts of pagan gods. But Jesus is the son of the living God. That's good news. And it's gracious news. Seeing and knowing Jesus in this way Jesus goes on to say, as a gift, verse 17, he answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon, you didn't figure this out. Somebody didn't call you over and tell you. My Father told you that. This, this, this conviction that Jesus is the Messiah is itself a gracious gift. We could talk about this for a long time. If you've seen that Jesus is the Savior sent from God and trusted in him, it's not because you're wise. It's not because you're more clever or more spiritual than most. It's because God has been gracious and opened your eyes. If you're praying for somebody that they would turn to Christ in this kind of faith, believing him, trusting him, following him, they will not do that because they are wise or you are wise or because they are clever or you are clever or because they're more spiritual or because you're more spiritual. They'll only do that because God graciously opens their eyes. 
It's the Father's gracious gift to open people's eyes to see who Jesus really is. And that helps us address one of the biggest questions that this text is going to throw at us. What are they supposed to do with this information? What are they supposed to do with this? They have to have wondered this, but now they've said it. And Jesus has said, yes, and the Father's revealed this to you. Peter, and Peter probably speaking for the disciples as a whole. Here's what I would expect. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I would expect Jesus to say, yes, yes, finally, you figured it out. Now go, go tell everybody. Go tell everybody who I am. Why are you still in here? Go, go tell everybody. But that's not what he says at all. I look down to the end of it, verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell who? No one. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Why not? Why doesn't he say, go tell everybody? Shouldn't he? No. Not yet. Not yet. Here's why. The crowds can't be trusted with this information. They will take this information and they won't do the right thing with it. They don't really understand. If they go out and convince people that Jesus is the Christ, they'll take him to be a different kind of Messiah than he really is. They'll take him to be a, a political figure, a social figure. We're going to turn this thing around. We're going to get rid of the Romans, and we're going to get rid of all the bad Jews, and we're going to start heading the right direction, and we're going to restore Israel to the glory it knew under David and Solomon. That's what they're going to expect, but that's not, that's not the kind of Messiah he is. Following him in the first place is not going to be a victory march going to go to a cross. We'll see that next week. The crowds can't be trusted with this information, but the disciples can't be trusted with it hardly either. In the very next paragraph, which we'll look at this week, Jesus will say, okay, so what's going to happen now is I'm going to go die. And what does Peter say? Wrong. Jesus will say, so I'm the Messiah. So what that means is, and Peter's going to go, you don't understand what the Messiah is, Jesus. Clearly no one told you. And Jesus is going to say, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, adversary. You don't have in mind the things of man, but the things, or God, but the things of man. They can't be trusted with it yet either. But the day is coming when they will. Think about the very end of Matthew. As the whole book finishes, it says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped. Some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's that Son of Man stuff, Daniel 7. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. When we get to the end of Matthew, he's going to say, go, go, go. Make disciples, teach them what I've said, baptize them in my name. What's happened between Matthew 16 and there? What's happened? Christ has suffered, and he's been crucified, and he's risen again. You've got to understand what kind of Messiah this is. Because that affects who and how we follow him. Back here in Matthew 16, Jesus is going to upend all of their expectations. It goes back really to what we looked at last week. 
In the second part of we looked at last week in verses 5 to 12, he, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven, you know, like yeast, right? It gets into bread and you put a little in, but it just kind of works its way and through all the dough and infects or affects the whole thing. He says, watch, the, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch out for the leaven of the religious leaders. Why? Because everything they taught was wrong? No, but because what they understood and taught about the Messiah was wrong. He says, you've got to watch out for them. What he's saying is, look, they, they are no longer the arbiters and leaders of who God is and what the Messiah is like and what God expects. Nope, there's going to be a regime change. They're on the way out. Who's on the way in? Well, well Jesus, right? But, but there's actually more here. Look at verse 18. After verse 17, he says, you know, he says, you know, my father's revealed this to you. Look where he immediately goes, verse 18. I tell you, you're Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. First place we've seen that word in Matthew. I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Immediately, he begins to talk about the church. The church is an assembly. It's a gathering of people. See, what God is doing in the world is not a bunch of free agents. Hear the message, go and do your thing. He's creating a new people. It's the same word we go into the Old Testament for the assembly, the people of God, the called out people of God, Israel, from all the world, from all the nations of the world. God has called one nation, Israel, to be his people. He'll be their God, they'll be his people. His presence is there with them in their tabernacle and then in their temple. They are God's called, special, chosen people. New people now, it's the church. And what is that church built on? Well, what he says here, and there's much in here, we don't have time to, to look through all of this. We'll consider some of this more in a couple weeks when we get to Matthew 18. But he says, I'm going to build, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, the word Peter is Petros, rock is Petra, same word basically, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build it on you, Peter. Well, this is actually very controversial, of course, uh, the Roman Catholic Church says, yeah, Peter, and Peter was the first bishop of Rome, and every successive bishop of Rome is his successor. Of course, we call him the Pope now, and the whole church is built on the Pope. The Protestant reformer said, no, 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 it's not built on the person, Peter, it's built on the confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's, you, can, you can spend your whole life studying that if you want to. Um, probably at some level, it's both. It's built on Peter and the apostles generally, and their leadership over the church, their stewardship of the message of Jesus, a Messiah crucified and risen again. The striking thing here is that the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah immediately turns into the creation of a new institution. It's no longer the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin or the scribes or the teachers of the law or the lawyers. They no longer are the authority that governs God's people and stewards his word. Now it's a church. It's a church built on the foundation, as Paul will say later, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, built on the gospel message of Christ crucified and risen again. Here's what that says to me. Two big things I want to think about this morning as we finish. Every one of us must reckon with who Jesus really is. You can't rely on who your parents thought Jesus was. You can't piggyback on their faith or their commitment to Jesus. 
You can't just say, well, I'm part of a church, and so I'll ride their coattails into God's good favor. No, every person must reckon with God themselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? You can ignore it. You can kick it down the road a ways if you want, but that question is coming to you. There will be a day when who you say Jesus is and how you have related to him and whether or not you're trusting him will become the most important question in your life. That day is coming. I would urge you not to kick that question down the road. I would encourage you not to wait until, as with Jacob Eames, it's just too late. Judson, as he rode back toward his parents' house, reflecting on the passing of Eames, reflected on if, if, the, if the religion of my father, the religion of Jesus Christ is too, then hell itself came up into the room next to me for that man. Each of us must reckon ourselves with God and who Jesus is. But we don't do it alone. He has created a new people. He is building a new people, a church, through whom, as we'll see, as we'll come back to this, this binding and loosening will come back up again in chapter 18. We'll think about it more there. That God has given us to follow Christ, not on our own, not as free agents, not as spiritual hermits doing our own thing, making our own rules, calling our own shots, but in the context of a new people that is there to encourage us and help us and strengthen us. Oh, we want to take advantage of that. We want to plug ourselves into that. We don't want to go it alone. We want to do it together. Father, I pray that each of us would stare directly into the face of the question, who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to me? That we would not, that we would not equivocate, we would not say, well, I'd like him to be this, I'd like him to be that, but that we would see him as he really is, revealed to us in the scriptures with our eyes and hearts enlightened by the gracious gift of your spirit. Lord, none of us looks at Jesus 100% right. We're clouded by our sin. We're clouded by our selfishness. We're, we're, our hearts and minds are clouded by mistakes and errors that we've heard or believed about him. And so what I'm asking for right now, for every person here, is spiritual eyes wide open to the real Jesus, the Savior crucified for us, risen again for us, and that we would consider everything else in life secondary to embracing that Jesus by faith, believing that he gives forgiveness by his death and resurrection, submitting to him as Lord because he's your Messiah and King. I pray no one would leave this morning with the knees of their heart not bowed down in surrender and faith to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you've not left us alone in this enterprise. I thank you that you've given us the church. Father, we want you to build your church over this entire world. Father, millions, billions of people this morning 
worshiping you. Father, we want you to build this church. We want you to grow us in submission to Christ, in trust in Christ, in confidence in Christ, in faith in who he is and what he will do. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be everything to us. I pray in his name, amen. I want to thank you for coming this morning. Uh, it's been good to be here. But before I dismiss you and forget, we're actually going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And it's a good morning to do it. Because as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we share in this together, this meal, as it were. We read about it earlier in Matthew 26. That Jesus and his disciples shared. They shared the meal together. As we do so, we remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and we look forward to the day when he brings us all together and with his people. Uh, we are not going to pass an offering plate. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you to share in this with us. We have here a kind of a combo pack. I don't know if we've used these yet, but uh, have we? So the top is the bread, the bottom is the, uh, uh, the juice. And uh, let me invite those of you who will to come up and to take. We've got four different spots here to take one, and then we will return to our seats, and then we'll partake together. Why don't you take a moment, those of you who would, and come. <laughs>